Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. The Ringer's got a brand new show out now about NFL player Cam Newton called The Cam Chronicles. We'll be releasing new episodes every Monday for the next six weeks, but you can binge all six episodes right now for free on Spotify. Here's a quick trailer. From The Ringer, I'm Tyler Tons, hosting a new podcast series, The Cam Chronicles. NFL star Cam Newton has always been a complex figure. Over the past year, I've traveled the country speaking to coaches and teammates, friends and family, and even briefly to the man himself, trying to unravel the enigma that is Cam Newton. The Ringer NFL Show presents Cam Chronicles. Listen to the full series now on Spotify. Hello, media consumers. You've got the press box here. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer with a bunch of good stuff for you today. We'll talk about the disappearance of Dr. Anthony Fauci, how the Trump administration came to hide and then almost campaign against a coronavirus truth teller. We'll have a jolly conversation with one of our favorite funny writers, Christopher Buckley, author of the new novel, Make Russia Great Again. Is Trump the best thing or the worst thing to happen to political satire. All that plus David guesses a strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, we got to begin with Wojgate. If you're not a sports Twitter person, on Friday, U.S. Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, sent out a press release about the NBA's relationship with China. Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN's all-powerful NBA reporter, responded to the press release by writing, Fuck you, <laughs> David. I've been I've been like Stephen A. Smith in the green room all weekend. I've just been pacing around, waiting to talk about this. I I, I just like I have about a thousand thoughts coursing through my mind. But before we fast forward to like free Woj and liberal ESPN and Clay Travis and all those other things we yeah. could go to, can we just sort of plan our pivot foot here and say that I can't believe this happened. <laughs> when this happened Friday afternoon, I'm like, that can't be real. And this is, we should say it was shared by Josh Hawley on Twitter, who screenshotted the Woj email. Eagerly shared. Yeah. Eagerly shared. But this was, this was a press release that came to a bunch of our inboxes, including mine. I scanned it for about 3.5 seconds before deleting it. And then all of a sudden on Twitter, there is a response from Woj to press at holly.senate.gov. Like he responded to the press alias within the senator's office. Right. I, I, I still don't get it again. And again, this is separate from should he have done it? Is it okay? Should he be suspended? All that kind of stuff. I just still am flummoxed by the fact that it happened at all. The mechanics of it is yes. what you're talking about. Okay. Um, I don't think I have an answer for you, but I, I guess I was less flummoxed. I think the maybe the tension is in that responding to the sort of spam mass email account that sent this thing out <laughs> is sort of like an our parents' generation thing to do, but responding with a two-word fuck you email is like the least our parents' generation thing you could possibly do, mm -hmm. right? Um uh, I mean, I got this, I, I I got the press release and I should say up front, I don't get a lot of press releases. You know, I mean, it's, it's what it, I'm on one listserv somewhere that people are paying for to send these things out. Um, 
I gotta say, I didn't even spend that much time with it. And the, I mean, I, I, I think if I had any thought about it at all, it probably didn't go much deeper than fuck you. But yeah, I'm not exactly sure what the, I think probably trying to read any sort of deliberate, you know, deliberate action to this is probably too much. I think it was just a instinctive reaction whether Woj thought he was responding directly to Senator Hawley or thought he was responding to some listserv functionary who would just feel bad about having put his name on the list. I don't know, but it was, it, it, it weirdly, it, it sort of made the point better than he could have possibly dreamed of if he had planned it out. Yeah. And, and, and I don't, I don't even, I don't even think we have to speculate. I just want to make it clear that we can sort of label this as the black hole of this story. Oh, we, sure. we don't know why he did this. We don't know why he did it in this manner. We may not know until Woj writes his memoir. Suggested title, How I, Lear How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the F-Bomb. <laughs> just throwing that out there, just in case, in case he needs something. We, we don't know why he didn't, if he wanted to just pull the pin on the grenade and say, hey, this is stupid, I'm sick of this, I want to make a statement, why he didn't just do it on Twitter to millions of followers. Right. And I saw some kind of tweets of we all Woach had this whole thing planned out. I really don't think that's the case. I really I you know that this would then blow up into this huge story. I, I I don't think that's what he was after here. Again, that's just not the way you go about these things. Um after the act it followed its probably fairly predictable course. Woj apologized on Twitter. He got a two week suspension from ESPN. He'll be back for the start of NBA season. Um, and thus started the hashtag free Woj campaign on Twitter. <laughs> what did you make of that, David? Um, what did I make of the campaign? Or I mean, I listen, I, th I mean, I thought of all the parts of this that were just sort of out of left field. That part was fairly predictable. I mean, to take somebody as sort of a sort of unlikely hero, uh, sort of a hero as unlikely as Woj and to put him in the center of such a media firestorm especially at a time where we're like suddenly paying attention to basketball news again and we talked last week about how there's sort of a constitutional limit to like how many you know gary harris has coronavirus tweets you're interested in reading as a basketball fan and then suddenly Woj is just in the middle of this like intersecting or you know our, our ongoing passion for the basketball with our prevailing obsession with with uh with politics mm -hmm. and listen regardless of what you think about what Woj did. And yeah, I mean, I hazard to say, even if you're on the other side politically from, you know, some of the the political statements that the NBA is trying to make right now. I mean, that press release from Senator Hawley was just plain, I mean, clear as day, fuck you material. I mean, that it was he was it was a trolling press release on a subject that deserved nothing but earnest consideration right now. It's like you he was. He was trying so fucking hard to find a way to make a sort of moral point against Black Lives Matter, and he came up with this China thing, and it was just, I mean, it was despicable. And uh, more than anything else, he was looking for attention, I'm sure, at a point in time where a lot of Republican politicians are having a hard time figuring out how to get their face in public without, you know looking like idiots i mean i guess he managed to do that but he but he he laughed his way through or tweeted through it i guess yeah I, I did read one column that said you know Woj speaking out against this was a distraction 
from the very valid point that Josh Hawley was trying to make. I said, no, 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 <laughs> we got this. We got this all backwards, right? The press release was the distraction. The press oh, release yeah. was the attempt to draw the NBA and make the NBA a part of the culture war at this moment in a, in a handy way. I mean, the, the, the statement that jumped out to me, and I think this is the moment I hit delete, uh, Holly was talking about the statements that the NBA has allowed the political messages on the back of the jerseys. Yeah. And he says, the truth, he's writing to Adam Silver, the truth is that your decisions about which messages to allow and which to censor, much like the censorship decisions of the Chinese Communist Party, are themselves statements about your association's value. Okay, so <laughs> we're not making a point about the NBA in China, just making a point about the NBA in China here, it's something you and I have talked about on this pod many times. We are comparing the NBA to the Chinese Communist Party. Right. That that's when the troll alarm goes off, right? Well, and the and the, and, and the implication here, just in case anyone hasn't read the press release, which I, I'm guessing many people haven't. But the implication is that if given the opportunity, if the NBA didn't limit the things that could be on the back of the jerseys, if the whole world was like XFL version 1.0 of the entire NBA and you could put whatever you wanted to on the back of your jersey, the implication being that there would be NBA players who were eagerly setting aside Black Lives Matter and anything else that was of urgent and contemporary concern to say, to, to call into question the NBA's relationship with China on the back of their jersey and that the NBA was actively prohibiting that outcome by limiting the options, which is maybe maybe laughable is the wrong word, but just so misguided and tone deaf, I don't even know what to say. Yeah, and I think another of the accompanying pieces, and this is a, and this is a no link, but this idea that somehow the national media has not been covering the nba and china <laughs> relationship do we not remember what happened after the daryl Morey tweet yeah in october the nba got crushed yep lebron james got crushed right various writers who did not immediately speak up got crushed I pr i'm pretty sure that i crushed espn on here for not devoting the full resources that it said it would devote to sports politics stories to that story Mm -hmm. clear which clearly happened so this idea that somehow we, everyone has been silent except for josh Hawley and certain websites that he might tag in the in the tweet he sends out it's just oh my god just absolutely ridiculous and that that somehow gets drawn in here like there's been this this silence around that that's not the case at all no that, absolutely not that's not the case at all and i guess you know when I say not understanding why Woj went there with this press release, what I'm just so interested partly is what makes him to me always so interesting to me is he chose a decade ago to essentially stop going down the path of, I want to be the great sports columnist in the mold of a Mike Lupica and, and people of your like that and deciding I want to be the pure information guy. Right. That, that has always struck me as so interesting because not only because he became so famous, that that is like one of the most consequential decisions in sports writing to me in the last 20 years. It changed. It helped change, at least I should say, the direction of sports writing. Right. It yeah. made certain things seem valuable in our world and it made other things seem less valuable. It also anticipated the way Twitter and other things would would change the nature of the thing. But For essentially, sure. when Woj made that decision, he was sort of saying like, 
I'm not going to be the guy writing fuck you. <laughs> right. If he were a columnist, yeah, he could jump on this. Right. And he could be like, let me tell you, let me let me help you understand why X does not equal Y. Let me help you sort out the sort of morality of this. But he went the other direction. Now, he doesn't rule himself out from ever from ever having a moral stance on anything. But again, that's just that just to me is part of the background of this whole thing. We don't think of Woj like that, at least in his most current iteration. No, and, and certainly that's why this had the sort of currency and the you know excitement attendant to it that it did. I, I think that it's it's you know you don't one wasn't on a, doesn't want to read into motives too much. Although I guess that's the entire purpose of what we've been talking about. But you know if by making the choice, the career decision, you know the career by charting the career path that he did, Woj, like you said, didn't disqualify himself from having political opinions or any sort of like you know, non-robotic opinions moving forward. It's certainly not that in his job description, but um, it's hard to imagine the NBA right now without Woj. And while you don't look at Woj and, and necessarily correlate him to, you know, uh, a political movement and certainly not, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter or anything specific, the NBA is especially at this moment in time is sort of inextricably linked from those movements. And as in so much as they're inextricably linked from Woj, it's not shocking to think that he would be interested in evolving in a more political direction, whether or not it's career-based, maybe it's a personal journey. And uh, at this point in, in, in our country, you know, at this point in, in current year, it's not just him. Everybody's becoming more political than they were before. So, you know... Uh, I can imagine what got him to the point of having the opinion of fuck you. Uh, there is a, the standing question of what led to the email that said fuck you. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that we can, we might as well pivot now. I think that there, there's sort of a, you know, we can have the conversation we've had a million times, but but the but the, the politics of ESPN are almost the more interesting political piece of this puzzle, right? Yeah. Though, did we learn anything new about the politics of ESPN or did does... Oh, what's his name? Just just think we learned something new about the politics of ESPN. Oh, that's a good question. So, you know, cut in here when if you see fit. I mean, ESPN is for a long time. It's it it believes in nothing seemingly more strongly than that no one should believe in anything strongly uh, if they're connected to ESPN, and is very free to you know very willing to punish if nothing else in the world willing to punish the perception of partiality and political partiality in particular right mhm mm at times it seemed like they you know were were choosing their targets based on something more than just the words that were said but i think that they've sort of evolved into a very a rather even-handed if ridiculous uh, punishment system for people expressing politics their employees expressing politics publicly now that said, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it's, I, guess, I guess this is more of a matter of decorum than of politics, although it certainly is going to seem to a lot of people like, like a political issue. I, I, I guess if I was in, his, in Woj's position, I would not be surprised to be suspended, and Woj was suspended for two weeks, as you said. I would not be surprised to be suspended for this, although if I were feeling litigious or full of myself, I might be interested in seeing what the, and, and having them like lay out the case. What, what part of the employee handbook prohibits me from sending an email that says, fuck you. 
Yeah. And I think decorum is in this case, probably much more important. Right now. I think if he tweets, this is a bunch of crap, you know, I, I, that that's like, you know, this, this opinion is a bunch of crap that this Senator has. I think that, I think that certainly gets a phone call, but I sort of doubt that gets a suspension. Mm -hmm. I really don't think so. I think it gets a, Hey, what are you doing? Because clearly the Jimmy Pataro era is about stamping that out. Yeah. uh, For the most part. I mean, that's part of, part of this is just like, I and and I this I just think this every time the you know the liberal ESPN quote unquote piece is written is that's just it's at some point it's just a bit right you know it's just like there's just nothing they could do Jimmy Pataro comes in and says I I want to limit you know any any sort of politics on this network to this and this and this up oh, liberal ESPN well wait what <laughs> what happened you know yeah uh, Woj sends this email to a senator. Two week, he is suspended for two weeks. One of ESPN's most prominent personalities is suspended for two weeks. Up oh, liberal ESPN. Can I can I tell you what one thing this kind of the whole story reminds me of, David, in a weird way? Go. Remember when ESPN came out with the story about Bob Costas leaving NBC after he'd been critical of brain injuries in the NFL? Uh-huh. And Twitter suddenly had this new and unusual feeling about Bob Costas. Oh. Like 24 <laughs> hours later. There's a little bit of that in this story, right? Yes. Like Woj is Woj has never been more popular among sports writerdom than he has been over the last 72 to 48 hours. LeBron James, a player whom he harshly criticized a decade ago, around the time of the decision when he was at Yahoo, tweeted free Woj, <laughs> right? It's I mean, it's like, you know. The bridges have been rebuilt, right? Mm-hmm. Because in this unusual time. And to me, that might be one of the most remarkable aspects of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it it, it it's not what we would have expected. Although <laughs> no. Uh although, you know, I'm not I, I mean I feel like everybody sort of I mean, I feel like this is a win for Woj. I mean, if you want to just get down to the nuts and bolts of it, and 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 I'm sure that for a lot of NBA players, even people like LeBron James, they understand that there's a significance in someone like Woj just having this sort of reaction. Oh, absolutely! I mean, isn't, isn't this sort of where our country feels like it's going right now? I mean, not obviously not top to bottom. This is, that doesn't describe everybody, but the kind of the politicization of the Woj's in our country is sort of the story of what's been, I mean, not the story, but that's a little bit of this, the, the, the background noise of what's been going on in our country for the past several months. I, yes. And I, and I think it's just increasingly impossible not to be politicized. Right. You know, and I, yeah. and, I and I, and, and by the way, you know, you're talking to two guys here who are totally politicized yeah. <laughs> and happy and happy to admit it. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, sort of rubbing my hands and say, oh boy, if only we could have the, if only we could get back to the days when the, when the NBA insiders didn't have political opinions. No, no, no. But, but I mean, but you're touching on what I think is a really interesting point, which is that like, it's not, well, I mean, just drawing several parts of the conversation together, but in some ways it's the, the bit that, that we were talking about, the ESPN is liberal bit, though it's those sorts of, it's that sort of commentary and that sort of more broadly defined political force in our country that in a lot of ways has made it impossible to be to to be apolitical, right? It's a sort of inverse self fulfilling prophecy that that you react to people, you react to those opinions, and and it ends up politicizing the woges of the world. 
Yeah. And I also think that this moment in our country where people who might have resisted politics, right, or might who might have been okay with the restrictions their employer placed on them to resist politics are mm-hmm. saying, sorry, I can't do it. Right. Yeah. Sorry. And I don't want to do it because there's there's door number one and there's door number two. And I feel okay walking through door number one right now. Right. Yeah. I don't, the, the situation is too urgent. We've just been through protests after the killing of George Floyd. We've just been through all these things as a society. I've seen my fellow ESPN employees like Maria Taylor, like Michael Eaves come out and say things about this moment about how they feel at this moment, in American life. And I'm okay with choosing right before, before I might've said, I don't want to, I am a sports writer. I don't want to get shoved into, I don't want to get shoved into a choice, right? I don't publicly want to make that choice. I'm okay with it right? Mm-hmm. I'm more comfortable. The world has yeah. changed to that point, And I feel I sort of have to do it at that point, at this point in time. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. Did you see the remark from Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, David, about the opening of schools in his state? Big issue at the end of last week and this weekend. DeSantis said, if you can do Home Depot, if you can do Walmart, you can definitely do the schools. Oh, my God. I did not see. I don't know how I missed that, but that's ridiculous. It was an overworked Twitter joke to cite the famous movie line. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. And also pointed out <laughs> that that was not intended as public health advice. There was a vo- <laughs> there was a video, David, excuse me, of. The implosion of the palace at Auburn Hills. You know the palace at Auburn Hills, old home of the Detroit mm-hmm. Pistons. Uh, plenty of great basketball there played by the bad boys back in the day. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, and this is for the Woj NBA fans of the world. The Pistons blew it up. Thanks <laughs> to Jose Bouquet. That's just chef's kiss. That's yeah. a short but sweet. <laughs> right. It's for us, really. An overworked Twitter joke just, just for the ringer. And I got another sports one here for you. The Big Ten football conference became the first conference last week, David, to cancel out-of-conference games this fall mm-hmm. due to the coronavirus. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, no surprise, Big Ten coaches have always been wary of the spread. <laughs> I like that. Thanks to Ben Adams. If you didn't let the coronavirus rule you out from making fun of Big Ten defenses, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, Dave, before we get to the notebook dump, let us hear a word from Roman. Have you been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles? Finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started could be overwhelming. Thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online consultation, You'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. If appropriate, a doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. You'll receive your custom skincare treatment with a free two-day shipping. You'll also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. Go to GetRoman.com PressBox to try out a three-month supply of nightly defense for just five bucks. It's free to chat with a doctor and your first order is only five dollars. That's Get roman.com slash press box eligibility requirements and additional terms apply all right david time for the notebook dump consider us to be pretty big news consumers Uh uh-huh 
So I asked this in that spirit. When was the last time you saw Dr. Anthony Fauci like on oh. TV with your own eyes? <sighs> I feel like I've seen him, but I was I'm probably having a you know, some adult memory of B-roll footage or something <laughs> like that. I don't know when the last time I saw him was. I saw Nate Silver promoting his appearance on the 538 podcast last week, audio only. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen him forever. And there's a new Washington Post piece out by Yasmin Abudaleb, Josh Dossie, and Lori McGinley that talks about how the Trump administration is where's Waldoing Fauci and also conducting a not so quiet campaign against him. Uh, some facts from the Washington Post piece Fauci last spoke to President Trump the first week of June. Uh, if you haven't noticed, it's been kind of a big month for coronavirus. Oh Has not God. spoken to Trump in over a month. Uh, he's been pulled off. TV interviews. There's a Trump ally in the Health and Human Services Department that has control over Fauci's TV appearances, not just TV, not print or audio, apparently. And after Fauci challenged Trump's line about the comparatively low coronavirus death rate we've seen lately, Fauci saying, no, no, don't get snookered by that fact. He was taken off several planned TV appearances this week, including Meet the Press. Instead, he's doing the 538 podcast and sports radio. And then this week, David, the White House took it up a notch. They gave news organizations a list of things Fauci had said in the past months that turned out to be wrong. NBC News said this list was similar to an oppo research document that the Trump campaign would be using against Joe Biden. So there's that. And then, yeah, and even on television, where Fauci is not allowed to be, apparently, Admiral Brett Sherwa, member of Trump's coronavirus task force, said this on Meet the Press on Sunday. I respect Dr. Fauci a lot, but Dr. Fauci is not 100% right, and he also doesn't necessarily, and he admits that, have the whole national interest in mind. He looks at it from a very narrow public health point of view. But let me just say, there is absolutely open discourse. I feel absolutely free saying anything to the vice president within those rooms. The vice president, I know, briefs the president on a daily basis. So um, nobody feels uh, like anything is held back. We all take this as a serious crisis. It's got to be science driving uh, the policy, and, and that's the way it is. Now, that is a fellow member of the coronavirus task force, by the way. Certainly, it's possible to say true and untrue things in the same sentence, but I just don't know how you can talk how you how he can say we all take this very seriously with a straight face, and expect anything else he says to be held with any sort of legitimacy. <laughs> yeah, and and don't you love the conflation of Anthony Fauci said something wrong that turned out to be wrong about the coronavirus back in like January, February, March when we were still getting our arms around this, right? He was he was you know not especially pro mask early on, some other things like yeah. that that have changed versus Donald Trump saying the coronavirus will magically go away. But somehow those two wrongs are equal. This is what the Trump administration essentially is arguing. I mean, even if Fauci had been entirely wrong, I mean, what if, I mean, even if, even if, even if he had said, you know, things that proved to be just utterly incorrect and he'd since retracted and, you know, changed his point of view, even if he was still wrong, what the hell is the White House doing sending out oppo research on this guy? I mean, what is the, the this is just the the part the character of the Trump White House that I cannot comprehend that instead of being the complete inability to deal with anything in house. I don't know if this is another situation where 
Trump has told his people to like shut him up five million times and no one's willing to actually do it. And they just keep telling Trump he's done. They've done it. It's the inability to fix anything, even though I'm glad he's not fixing it and just sending out like wasting time, which you clearly don't have enough of to do anything good on accumulating and sending out oppo research on another government official. It's just (laughs) so weird. Like it's just so bizarre. It's so bizarre. And, and, you know, I think we can ascribe basically probably the most base motives to this. Peter Navarro, who's a Trump advisor, is apparently mad that Fauci was against hydroxychloroquine, which Navarro was for. There was a New York Times poll that shows 67% of voters trust Fauci to talk about COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Trump only gets 26% in the same poll. So there's mm-hmm. definitely some Trump saying, well, wait a second. Why are they believing him and they're not believing me? Not to yeah. mention, obviously, the background of a political campaign where the big, the single biggest issue right now is Trump's mishandling of the coronavirus, which Fauci is, and again, in his very kind of diligent way, sort of, and very quiet, sort of elliptical way, has been pointing out over the last couple of weeks. Does he, are they still mad about hydroxychloroquine? I mean, haven't hasn't that been wide? It was in one of the pieces. That, hasn't it been widely established that, if, that that's <laughs> it's that it's like hurting people, if anything? Yeah, it's not a good idea. It's it, it did not turn out to be the miracle cure that the <laughs> the president <laughs> advertised it as. Yes, I am. It's just, it's so it it's just so perplexing. There was another. I mean, again, this is a spin. I mean, this is a, a tangent. But there was another poll that I saw NPR citing about. Just a shocking number of people that have heard the conspiracy theory that the quote unquote people in power have like created coronavirus uh, as some sort of population control tool. And that like something like 70 percent of, of adults had heard of it and 30 percent of those 70 like believed it could or possibly be true. It's just we're sidelining people that actually know what they're talking about. Meanwhile, some like quarter of the public apparently believes that this is a. That there are people out to, I mean, the, that the people in power are trying to kill us with this thing. Like, it's just, and Trump thinking he can just say nonsense and it doesn't matter if it turns out to not be true. It just seems, I mean, like, oh man, I hope that he doesn't believe that, but I'm sure that he does. At the risk of pivoting to a meta media conversation here, okay. let's say that TV is taken off the table for Anthony Fauci. Okay. How much <laughs> of his message could he get out? This is like the, the, the sort of hole in your media organization's policy, right? I can do outside interviews of this kind, but not this kind. Mm-hmm. Let's just say Fauci can just do radio, podcast, and apparently like, you know, a handful of print interviews or something like that. How much of his message could he get out, do you think? Or what kind of audience could he reach that he wants to reach if he did not have TV on the table? Well, is the assumption that he could say whatever he wanted, that he could go on the radio and just make fun of Trump and continue to do it? Well, he's probably not going to. Let's just say he's going to say Anthony Fauci type things. I will say that he could probably get, I mean, I don't know. It seems as sad as it is. I mean, certainly all the big news shows, TV shows are eager to have him on. There is no one above him on the, in the pecking order. But when he's out doing radio and podcasts and everything else, it seems like he's only getting press attention when he does a, a, a when he appears on a surprising show or when he says something that directly contradicts the president. So um, maybe this is like, you know, grassroots advertising where he's actually doing a much better job than you and I, you or I are, are entirely cognizant of. 
But, you know, I think that his best path forward might be sort of like a shot comedy with scientific data spilled in, you know? I mean, they were sprinkled in. He needs to needs stay in the news, and it's hard when you're not on TV. David, have you ever wondered whether the Trump administration is good for political satirists or bad for political satirists? I have wondered, yes. Ah, glad you have. I've got just the man who can answer that question. Christopher Buckley is one of my favorite writers. He has written 19 books, but I think this is the first one he has been moved to dedicate to the deep state. It's a comic (laughs) novel called Make Russia Great Again. It involves not just one potentially impeachable Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin election plot, but many such plots. And it marks Buckley's (laughs) return to political satire after a brief hiatus. Thanks for being here, Christopher. Good to be here with you. (laughs) You left the realm of political satire there for a few years. Well, like, you know, about four or five years ago, I kind of, you know, American politics was looking pretty self-satirizing. And I, I didn't really think it needed much, uh, much help from me. And so I wrote a couple of historical novels and they were they were fun. And they, you know, they did OK. They didn't knock Hillary Mantle off the mantle. <laughs> so uh, and people kept saying, "Why aren't you writing about this?" You know, this is. Uh, and the answer was that I don't know. It, it's satire in the in the Trump era is I think a it's a tricky proposition. You know, on the one hand, he's a low hanging fruit; he's very easy to make fun of. But in 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 another sense, I think that makes it more challenging. You have to you know you really have to uh, you have to up your game. But it, you know, uh, it is being done and brilliantly by, uh, you know, everyone from Stephen Colbert to uh, this amazing new talent, Sarah Cooper, who mm. uh, seems to have invented a, you know, an entire new genre <laughs> of satire by simply lip syncing. Uh, well, although I know it's it's more complicated than simply uh, lip syncing. Anything that good is not simple, generally. Anyway, it's it's certainly being done. It uh, it is on the one hand funny, and on the other hand, not not in the least funny. You know, uh, depending on on uh, your uh, your orientation. Yeah, and I would think you know, for a satirist, on the one hand, Kellyanne and George Conway fighting in public. I mean, how can that possibly be bad for a political satirist? On the other hand, the news just moves so quickly. And I sort of wonder, when you sit down to write a book about Trump and Russia, is it somewhere in the back of your mind that, uh uh-oh, what if he's entangled in a plot with Samoa or something by the time this book actually comes out? (laughs) You know, I dotted the last I and crossed the last T in a bar in Asheville, North Carolina, on, I think it was March 8th. I treated, I finished the book and I treated myself to a uh, to a fishing to two day two days of fishing and uh, so I, I was going over the final uh, galleys as, as we call them and uh, there was a there was a sentence where um, it said uh, the meme uh, of there was a something Trump had done became a meme and it says it went more viral than the Spanish influenza <laughs> epidemic oh. of 1913. And in on March 8th, you know, COVID was a word that was sort of hovering in the 
in the ether, but you know, you, you, no one had really quite, including the president of the United States, really focused on it yet. And the copy editor wrote in the margin, "Are you sure?" <laughs> <laughs> so we, we 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 took that out. There were a couple of accidentally uh, uh, prescient things in it. I you know I started writing this draft, I guess, last October, and in order for the uh, for uh, you know, the premise is that a uh, computer in, somewhere in the basement of U.S. Cyber Command, U.S. Cyber Command, uh, autonomously retaliates against Russia for in, interfering in the 2016 election. Um, for that, and it, and it elects the head of the Communist Party as president of Russia, ousting Putin, which, of course, Putin is going to, you know, just take lying down. <laughs> but um, in order for that to happen, I had to confect a, an election uh, for Putin, even though uh, we're sort of between the six-year elections. So in, in the book, he's, he's, there's a special election <laughs> to, to make him president for life. And just last week, you know, there was, they, the Duma had a, or they held a, a referendum in uh in russia and guess what he he gets to be president until 2036 <laughs> it's one of the ironies of being a dictator you know you uh the the danger uh is happens when you leave office which is why dictators tend not to leave office at least you know uh uh head first yes and uh Anyway, so we have uh, Mr. Putin for, I'm sure everyone's, everyone's delighted to have Mr. Putin around for another, what, 13, 14 years. Speaking of prescience, so when you wrote, thank you for smoking back in the 90s, tobacco executives are hauled into Congress, you know, days before the publication of that book. And you're talking now about Russia. We also, there's also an incident in this book where Trump did not read his briefing paper uh, right. <laughs> about its incident, <laughs> Russia, something we might have seen in the last couple of weeks. What what goes through your mind when you get sort of that close to reality? Well, it, it, generally, you know, it's 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 a feeling of futility on, on my part. You know that uh, anything that I come up with is not going to be as good or as satisfying as 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 real life if in 2016 i had uh, uh written a novel in which the the just recapitulated everything that has happened in the last three and a half years and it were published you know even before trump became president i think your reaction would probably be oh come on you can't expect us to believe something like this is going to happen. You know, that the Washington Post would, by July of 2020, publish a story saying, headlined, the president has now told over 20,000 falsehoods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I couldn't come up with anything as good as that. <laughs> yes. And I feel, but it's funny, when I'm reading the book, I can feel you, as you say, after this hiatus, I can feel you coming back. You've got, you've got a, a group in Congress here called the House Aryan Caucus. which The House Aryan Caucus. Uh -huh. yes, which, <laughs> that's uh, a, right. A group called Ever Trumpers. The Ever Trumpers. I was very pleased with the Ever Trumpers. The Ever Trumpers, well, we mustn't give too much, right? But uh, the Ever Trumpers are <laughs> the true Trumpians, and they they uh, they they parade up and down Fifth Avenue in front of the Trump Tower, uh, 
on or, uh, on what's now that segment of Fifth Avenue called Black Lives Matter Way, and uh, with uh, shirts uh, with targets uh, on them uh, that say "Shoot me, Mr. Trump." They're so <laughs> dedicated that they are offering themselves up, and uh, yeah, who's to it, the passion of the of the pro Trump uh, uh, group is to be sure um, passionate. A lot of characters from Trump world are here in slightly different form. Uh, there is one Katie Borgia O'Reilly who bears a certain resemblance to Kellyanne Conway. She has a voice. Uh, it's called Meth Lab Lauren Bacall as one of the words of one a senator. <laughs> Did I write that? You might have written that. I guess you're not supposed to laugh. Around no, I, jokes, I, but, I laughed, but I was I was a bit pleased by that. And her <laughs> husband uh, Romeo O'Reilly. I wanted to recapitulate a, a what a phone call between these two must sound like. So. Uh, if it's a first-person uh, novel, and one of the drawbacks of the first-person uh, point of view is that you can't just, you know, uh, you have to explain how the uh, how you you come to know about this phone conversation. So he st- he's, he stops by Katie's office one day, and when she gets a call from her from her husband whom she's enraged at because he has just tweeted that the president is a head case. And she said, you can't say things like that about the president. He said, yes, I can. It's very important that I do. She said, you can't call him a head case. He said, darling, any minute now, he's going to start complaining that someone has eaten his strawberries. (laughs) And the, the alert reader will catch the reference to Captain Queeg in the, uh, the cane mutiny. Mm -hmm member who uh who goes totally bonkers because he's convinced that someone has eaten his his strawberries did you find i guess in mr trump's case it would be that someone has eaten his double bacon whopper (laughs) that's right that nightly uh (laughs) nightly feed of executive time nightly in inhalation there you go did you find it uh certain characters from trump world easier or harder to render in this book um well, the hardest of all, I suppose, is Trump. In in the first draft, which wasn't very good, uh, he I had him sort of everything he everything he says comes out uh, as a scream. In in the first draft, all his dialogue could have been rendered in in block caps, you know, with boldface. And I, you know, I took that down many notches in the in the uh, last draft because it's it's not that interesting just to hear someone bellowing. Although I think he does a fair amount of bellowing from what we from what we uh, from what we gather. Yeah, um, there's a uh, a Russian oligarch named Oleg Pishinsky, mm-hmm. and I had uh, I, I had fun with Oleg. He becomes a great friend of President Trump. <laughs> At the uh, at the 2013 Miss Universe contest, and Oleg is also is very close to Putin, and he has the contract from the Russian government to make you know the stuff Novichok that the Russian sp- uh, security services are forever smearing on former KGB agents in England, say, because you die very very unpleasantly. Well, Oleg. Uh, Oleg has the contract to make that stuff, which the CIA uh, calls, refers to as oil of Oleg. (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway. You were a noted prankster when it comes to Russia. Uh, November 1991, I found this clip. Peter Jennings of ABC oh, News. good for you. You're the first one, you're the first one to uh, refer to that. Good for you. Yeah, I'll let you tell the story, but just to set it up, Peter Jennings of ABC News goes on television when, when the nightly news was still big and reports that the then-Soviet Union was auctioning off the embalmed body of Vladimir Lenin. Uh, one problem, the Soviets were not actually doing that. Will you tell our listeners how that came to be? I was the editor of a Forbes magazine at the time, and it was 1991, and uh, this was back in the in the in the uh, just post-Soviet era when Boris Yeltsin was having to climb up on you know on tanks and prevent them from uh, shooting at the uh, Russian parliament. And I became sort of obsessed by the fact that though they had gotten rid of, of uh, Leninism and Marxism, uh, they hadn't gotten rid of Lenin. He's, he was still the, you know, as it were, um, dead mouse in the, uh, on the living room floor of, of, of Russia, his embalmed corpse being there in Red Square. So I confected a, uh, it was an out-and-out hoax saying that, you know, we'd just uh, come on, uh, gotten this extraordinary news that they were, the government was so strapped for cash that they were going to uh, auction off the embalmed corpse of Lenin. Uh, but, you know, they were concerned that it'd be done in a tasteful way. So it was going to be a, a sealed bid. And, and I had to come up with a, a, a floor price. This was in the, you know, pre, pre-Google days when, uh, and pre-eBay. Uh, days when, you know, now, I mean, today, if you were auctioning off Lenin, you'd know exactly what he was worth within five minutes, you know, on eBay, because the market would uh, tell you uh, what he was worth. So 15 million sort of struck me as a, uh, as a likely price. So we faxed, we faxed this out to all the news outlets and, uh, uh, and, P- and Peter Jennings bid. Dear Peter Jennings, uh, uh, may you rest in peace. And it became a, a, a huge story. And the, um, <laughs> the Russians were not amused. Uh, my phone rang early the next morning. It was my boss, Steve Forbes. Uh, uh, it was seven in the morning. He said, the Russians have gone ballistic. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a bit like you know the line in Dr. Uh, Strangelove. Remember, they, they tell him, uh, Mr. President, it's Premier Kissoff on the hotline, and he's hopping mad. <laughs> well, they, they, they were hopping mad. But anyway, so it, it was exposed as a hoax, and everyone eventually recovered their sense of humor. Six months later, I was, in the, uh, I was on the, the old Metroliner going up to New York, and I opened my Washington Post, and there's a, a six-column uh, headline saying Kremlin deluged uh, with offers for Lenin. And apparently the fact that this was a hoax had escaped the notice of the 900,000 readers of Forbes who were, I guess, too busy making money to read the newspapers. And the top bid came in uh, for 25 mil. (laughs) From from a a gentleman in Dallas, Texas. Hmm. And it was accompanied, the bid was accompanied by a, a wonderful, uh, sweet, uh, almost sweet note, because it was, it was so innocent. He said, uh, I've, uh, you know, we've just completed our new head, corporate headquarters down here in Dallas. I, 
I've discussed this with our interior decorator, and he thinks Mr. Lennon would make a fine addition to our new lobby. (laughs) 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 Anyway, Lennon's still there. And uh, it's made me a little bit nervous about going to Russia. I, uh, you know, so I think maybe I'll just, well, yeah. No one's going anywhere right now, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to worry about the book tour uh, swinging through right now. <laughs> there no, anyway. no. It's funny because reading your book, you know, Russia was a gigantic comic subject in America through the end of the Cold War and a little bit beyond, and I feel it declined uh, some in the last couple of decades. Was it fun to bring that, bring that back, as it were? Yeah, I had uh, uh, Oleg is a big part of the of the book, as you know, uh, without without giving it away. And I've always had a uh, call it a, a fond uh, uh, comic sense about uh, about Russia, which may stem largely from uh, what I still think is the greatest movie ever made, Doctor Strangelove, which came out in nineteen sixty four. Uh, I worked. Uh, I worked at the White House uh, for a couple of years. I was Mr. Bush's uh, speechwriter when he was vice president, and uh, you know there was a. It was the Cold War was pretty hot then in the early '80s, and, and so Russia was uh, Russia was, you know, always always on the radar screen. Yeah, the um, I think you're playing with here is the idea of the White House memoir, which I believe you played with before. Uh, a particular literary form uh, that we are now in, enjoying in the John Bolton uh, iteration. I, you know, I, my my publisher Simon and Schuster uh, has has got me sandwiched between two monster uh, Trump uh, related books. One is John Bolton's, which came out a couple of weeks ago, and uh, in uh, in just a few weeks, Mary Trump's. Uh, uh, book will be published by Simon and Schuster. I feel like I'm in a. If it were a Disney cartoon, I would be the the mouse who is you know trying desperately to avoid being stomped on by by two <laughs> elephants. <laughs> At best, I'm the stick of chewing gum between main courses. You know the palate pencil, but uh, you know Bolton's book is number one, and I think it's sold you know, 800,000 copies in its, in its first week. And I'm, I'm sure uh, Mrs. Trump's, uh, uh, Ms. Trump's book is going to uh, do, do very, very well. The best really I can hope for this, my little book being fiction, is that maybe it will still be being read in, in 10 years, you know, we'll, but we'll have to see. Yeah, because the White House memoir is an extremely disposable genre, is it not? One of those things that burns quite brightly for a couple of weeks and a couple of months and then fades a bit. Gen- generally, yeah. I became sort of fascinated with them while I was you know, working in the White House, you know, logically, I suppose. And uh, they all seem to they all seem to have two themes. Uh, one, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> and, and then two, it would have been much worse if I hadn't been there. Mm-hmm. You know? But uh, they're, uh, it's 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 a rich little uh, little sub genre, and some of them I'm I'm actually doing. Uh, the Wall Street Journal asked me to do one of those, you know, five best books of a certain category. So I'm rereading 
uh, some some of my favorite uh, White House memoirs. And it's funny how some hold up for for sheer delicious bitchiness. I commend uh, John Ehrlichman's mem- uh, memoir called "Witness to Power," mm. and and it's got some you know some extraordinary stuff in it. Uh, Hoover. Remember, the Pentagon Papers come out, and now everyone in the Nixon White House was completely paranoid about it. And uh, Hoover, they, uh, they kept urging J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI to, uh, to investigate Daniel Ellsberg. Well, here's a detail that I had completely forgotten. It's in the Ehrlichman book. Ellsberg's father-in-law was a toy manufacturer who used to give uh, toys free to children of FBI agents at Christmas. So Hoover was fond of it. For that reason, he dithered. He dragged his heels. So finally, Haldeman gave it to Eagle Crow, a young go-getter on his staff, and told him to fix it. (laughs) And Eagle Crow, that's why Eagle Crow hired E. Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy. Oh wow! And you know we all we all know how well that turned out. <laughs> and there's this little, amazing little factoid still there. And, you know, my yellowed my paperback, you know, with its yellowed uh, pages. But anyway, it is a uh, it does so books like that do reward uh, uh, rereading. One more question for you, Christopher. Since this is a media podcast, I wanted to see if I could ask you to retell one story you've told a couple of times. You are 17 years old. Uh, <laughs> you had dropped acid, I believe, with a oh. pal. And you walk into your home, and this is going to become a media store here in a second, and you find what? 1970. And yes, and I'm just out of uh, high school. And a friend and I, uh, are, are, we decide we're going to celebrate by... Doing something that I don't necessarily recommend, but it sure worked for me. So we drop acid, and uh, we're just things are just starting to get interesting. And I, it's but it's it's getting a bit chilly. So I said, well, let me just stop by uh, the apartment, my parents' place, and I'll get a sweater. So <laughs> I open the door, and there are TV heavy TV cables everywhere. I mean, you know, I practically <laughs> trip over them. Get it tripping, and uh, and I look up and there's Mike Wallace, and they're do- he's they're doing a segment on my dad, and he says, "Oh great, you're here. We'll put you on next." <laughs> <laughs> and I went, "Ah, <laughs> you know, my dear Mike Wallace, I was very fond of him. His his face was interesting enough as it was, but it you know." Uh, through the prism of uh, of LSD, it was really inter- an interesting face, and uh, so yeah, that was my my one my one shot at at sixty minutes. And uh, it's it's funny, you know, it's funny you mentioned this today because I just got asked ten minutes ago to do, I guess, a podcast with Dan Rather. Mm. So it's 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 CBS. I'm, I'm having a CBS day. It's all coming around. I haven't thought of the LSD story in not a thousand years. That was 50 years ago. And you you did the interview 
with Mike Wells? Well, I didn't have much choice. I, you know, I tried to get out of it. I went upstairs. Yeah, and I was wearing a grungy T-shirt. My mom looks at me. She says, oh, you've got to go upstairs and change. <laughs> I'm having a hard enough time. I wasn't sure I'd be able to button the shirt. <laughs> I said, I, I, Mom, I said, I, I really, I, I don't think this is a good idea. She says, no, you have to do it for your mom. <laughs> so, you know, and, well, and my dad used to have a saying, which uh, first couple of times I heard it, I had to, think about it hard, but it, it's a, a lovely, liberating, uh, philosophical uh, insight that where there are no alternatives, there are no problems. Mm. I had no alternative, <laughs> so, but there was still a problem. Anyway, <laughs> I managed to uh, get through it without, you know, drooling or, or you know, completely tanking, but anyway. Thanks for thinking of that. I, I actually totally forgot. <laughs> the new book is Make Russia Great Again by Christopher Buckley, available at all bookstores and uh, in various contactless delivery options, which you uh, may be taking advantage of at this moment in time. Christopher, thank you. And I believe bulk orders are being accepted. Ah, there we go. Bulk orders as but well. But I, I think they're limiting them to 10 per customer. Okay. So. But that doesn't mean you can't you know, return and make a separate purchase of 10 more. <laughs> <laughs> I believe one of the Trump children's memoir was ordered in that in that fashion. Thank you, Christopher, for doing this. Okay, gents. Good talking to you. Take Thanks. Care. All right, time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Wah, wah. Monday's headline about a coronavirus quarantine escapee who went to the supermarket in New Zealand was I'll be damned. <laughs> Today's headline comes from Kirk A. Beto and Cade Stone. It's from Axios, David. Oh, those clever, clever headline writers at Axios. It's about Donald Trump on Friday commuting the sentence of his political advisor, former political advisor, Roger Stone. It's never quite clear whether Roger is in the current or former political advisor camp with Trump. Uh, Trump let him off the hook. Your pun word is Roger, David. Roger. What was Axios's strained pun headline? Uh, Roger will go. Ro wa <laughs> Roger well, uh, Jolly Roger. Oh, pretty good. Uh, pretty good. Uh, Roger, Roger Roger will go. It's very funny. <laughs> Roger. Um, uh, what Roger. Is, what is a term for uh, letting someone off? A do thing like draft dodger. I'm yes. Uh, I'm granting them uh, waiver. Uh, mm. um, am I trying to rhyme with Roger here? Well, I'm it's a pun. You know that's. Oh, kind of okay. The... Um, I'm, I'm I'm granting them a stay. Uh, uh, um, Cle clemency. Uh huh. Uh-huh. There we go. Oh, Roger clemency. Oh God, that's great. Roger clemency. Oh, I like that. Special for 80s Red Sox fans. Yeah, good stuff. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We're back Thursday. Listener mails due, so go ahead and send that in. I'm also interested in the Trump reopening the schools thing. Betsy DeVos had uh, quite an appearance this weekend on CNN. Plus, more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.